It's time now for Money Matters with the Lewis family, Doug, Linda, and Deborah, owners of Lewis Financial Management, a Raleigh-based family-owned financial planning firm providing investment and financial planning advice since 1983. Doug and Deborah are certified financial planners, CFPs, who can answer any of your questions about investments, retirement planning, and estate planning. Why not call Doug, Linda, and Deborah right now at 919-860-9783 with your financial planning questions. That's 919-860-9783. Now, here's Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Investments offered through SFA Inc. Investment advice through Lewis Financial Management. SFA Inc. and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. And we are the Lewis family, ready to answer your questions tonight. This is Linda Lewis, and thank you for joining us on Money Matters on News Radio 680 WPTF. And I'm Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And I'm Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. There was a really interesting article in the Wall Street Journal about 401ks and borrowing or making withdrawals from that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it had uh, five questions to ask before stealing from your 401k. Yeah, because that is exactly what it really is. It's stealing, in a sense, from your 401k. Which ultimately is stealing from yourself. Yeah, it's it's not a good thing to do. If you're short on cash and you're faced with, say, big medical or tuition bills or threat of foreclosure or something like that, most company 401ks do permit a type of a loan or hardship withdrawal, uh, but advisors like myself, financial planners like myself, we are always going to say, if at all possible, don't do it. Go somewhere else. Withdrawal from a 401k should be a last resort. And there are some pretty big repercussions if you do it. So you are really stealing from yourself But if you really have to touch that retirement stash, then there may be some ways to do it properly. So we don't want you to uh, do it alone. And if you need to do it, you need to be working with a financial planner because there are some real serious consequences if you don't. Yeah, I met with a client, come to think of it, a couple weeks ago, and he told me that uh, he had accumulated up to, I forget, maybe it was a half million dollars in retirement funds through these working years. And I said, well, where is it now? And he said, well, he had taken it all out to go ahead and help his uh, help uh, his relative start a business and everything. And so uh, you really hurt yourself. But on the other hand, sometimes you have to. So if you have to... And you have to um, tap your 401k. One of the first questions you should ask is, what's the tax hit on a 401k loan compared with a withdrawal? Yeah, you got to know these types of rules. Any withdrawal from a 401k is subject to income tax. And if you're withdrawing and you're under 59 and a half years old, then you're going to have to pay an additional 10% tax on the amount withdrawn also. How about a loan? A loan is different now. If a loan is made from your 401k, it is not taxable. It's tax-free. And the interest that you have to pay back, because you have to pay that loan back, but the interest is quite low compared with other borrowings. Usually, it's only about 1% or 2% over prime. So, you really don't have to uh, uh, think too much about the interest as you pay it back, and there's no tax. There is a problem. 
So there is a problem, isn't there, Doug? The problem is the amount, Linda. And what is and why is that a problem? Well, the maximum loan that I think I've ever seen allowed on a 401k is $50,000, and suppose you need $100,000. So now uh, the problem is you can't get enough money. Yeah, another thing, too, would be that if you didn't have... A hundred thousand in the four hundred one k. Many times, your four hundred one k is going to limit you to fifty thousand or fifty percent of what's vested. The very good. So Deborah you would Lewis, have to have a, right. you know a hundred thousand vested. It's the lowest of those. Two. That's yeah. right, Deborah. It's the lowest. So if you only have a hundred, if you only have forty thousand in your four hundred one k, the most you can borrow 20. is twenty thousand. Okay. So All right. so the four four hundred one k is supposed to be the vehicle at your employer where you're accumulating, right, Debs? Right. And But because of sometimes there are crisis situations, and sometimes there's other situations where someone wants to borrow the, the money so that they can purchase a house. Well, I agree with you guys. You're stealing from yourself if you dip in to the 401k. Not only that, Linda. Loans aren't available on every 401k plan. Some companies permit only one loan at a time. And this, so you've got to know what are the rules on your 401k, even if you plan to do such a loan. And many plans don't even allow loans. Some plans allow five loans. I've seen all kinds. But the decision to borrow it or take it as a hardship withdrawal is more complicated even still, still because of the taxes. So, Linda, what's question number two that you should ask uh, if you're going to take a loan or a withdrawal? So, if I choose a withdrawal, can I avoid some of the tax penalties? All right. Now, if you're considering a withdrawal, not a loan, then there are some ways to avoid the 10% extra tax, but it's not for everybody. First of all, there is no extra 10% tax penalty if you're over 55 years old and you've left the employer who's sponsoring the plan voluntarily. Now, you're not going to be assessed a penalty if you become disabled. You're not going to be assessed a penalty if uh, the withdrawal is to pay unreimbursed medical expenses. And sometimes if it's a divorce settlement, you're not going to have to pay that extra 10%. If you're not working for the company who's sponsoring the 401k, it's also possible to do what's called a Section 72T, which is, and, and when you do that, you avoid the 10% penalty. That's those substantially equal payments. That's right. That's right. You can take it over substantially equal payments over five years or until you hit 59 and a half years old. Got to take the longer of those two. Uh, and so that's a certain way that you can avoid that extra penalty if you got to do it. But you know, we had a case, a very interesting case, a couple weeks ago that was really right along this line. The facts were the client was under 59 and a half years old. In this case, he needed $100,000 and he needed it fast. Now, he couldn't borrow from his 401k $100,000 because $50,000 is the maximum. Well, but didn't have a 401k. Oh, sorry. The issue of where to go was, first of all, do I go to my 401k? And what's there isn't going to be $50,000. Correct. You're right. I mean, all the problems didn't work. But what he could do, and this is what I worked out with him. Okay. He could roll over 
a 401k to an IRA tax-free. Okay. Then he could withdraw from the IRA $100,000. You can't take loans from an IRA, but you can take a withdrawal, and there's no limits on the withdrawal. So he could take this withdrawal of $100,000 from the IRA, and now he had the money to pay the taxes for 2013, but he was still under 59 and a half years old, so we had a big problem here. On the other hand, he had some extra money coming that he knew about, and what he could do, we I worked this out with him, he could replace that money back into the IRA, even though he took it out before 59 and a half years old, he could replace it within 60 days because there's a special rule that says Excellent. if you get the money back in within 60 days, it never happened. So we can get it back in within 60 days and then wait until December 1st when he turned 59 and a half years old and now take it out again and avoid the penalty and we saved him $10,000 in tax penalties. Very, very creative. Wasn't that nice? Yeah. Very creative. You got to know all the rules. That's the whole thing. If you can play with the rules, then you can turn lemon into lemonade sometime. You've got to know the rules. And so whether it's a loan or it's a withdrawal, well, all... A third question that people need to ask themselves is, am I feeling solid in my job? Yeah, that's crucial because taking a loan from your 401k requires you to have faith in your job security. If you leave your job because you're laid off, or even if you just moved to another company, that loan balance has to be repaid within 60 days or it is treated as a distribution, meaning that you may owe that tax plus 10% The penalty, because it suddenly is a withdrawal, not a loan. So for many people with a loan outstanding who then change jobs, dipping into savings is the only way they can repay the loan balance quickly unless they they cash out of the 401k upon leaving and it becomes a big problem. So always, before you raid that 401k, make sure that you feel solid on your job. And question number four, will I mind my account in a slow lane for six months or more? And here, this is really speaking to, well, if you make this loan or this withdrawal, you are going to have to um, usually be somewhat penalized. You're usually restricted from making contributions to the plan for six months after taking a hardship withdrawal, which further cuts into your retirement assets because the only reason why you put it aside in your retirement plan is so it can grow tax deferred. And you can't make more contributions until you have passed that other that, that six months. So now you've hurt yourself double. And one downside of a loan is that the money you borrow is not going to be earning what it would have in the 401k, reducing the power of compounding. So we've got a, a double or triple problem there uh, if we do it in the, in, in the way of a loan from the 401k. And of course, always there's the question, do I have an IRA substitute? Anything that I can work with an IRA Those with old 401ks, typically from former employers, might consider rolling them over into an IRA, which has much looser rules for early withdrawals, such as the one that I used for the client a few weeks ago. And with an IRA, you're not subject to that 10% penalty tax if you're going to use the money to pay for college tuition or your spouse or your spouse's children or grandchildren. So 
Just All really underscoring things. that you can get around much more within the retirement account world, even just having the IRA versus the 401k. Now, isn't it interesting how many folks there are out there that leave their current employer or their former employer and they forget to roll over that 401k. So if you're out there listening and you have, you know, I think sometimes it's nostalgia. You know, they were working for that company for so many years. But once you leave your former employer, you have the right That's to right. roll it over into an IRA uh, in your own name. Tax free. Take it away from your former employer. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. Call us at Lewis Financial Management. Set up an appointment for your financial planning. For a consultation with Doug or Deborah Lewis, call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. All right, Doug, let's take another call. Quint, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you this evening? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, thank you. <clears throat> I, uh, a friend of mine, a widow in her 70s, is selling a few acres of land, or only a state that she has except for her house, uh, for about 150000 I'm just wondering, is there a way for her to avoid or defer the huge tax bite that receiving uh, large payments or full payment would create? Is, uh, for example, a, is there a trust of some sort that could be established Yes, there is. Tell me a little bit more, Quint, about the specifics, and I'll tell you how to do it. Uh, you can avoid all taxes on sale of real estate if you play the game right. Mm-hmm. How old is she? Uh, she's just past 70. She's 70 years old. Is she married? Or You say she, she's, she's a widow? widow? Widow, yeah. She's a widow. Does she have children? Uh, grown sons and uh, uh, 40, 35, 40 years old. All right. What's the size of her estate? Uh in, that, uh, in addition to this... Uh, yes, her total estate. Oh, probably 225 something like that, 250 About a $250,000 total estate. Inclu- yes, including e- the land that's about to be sold. Right. Now, this land, you say the land is worth $150,000? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's not her residence? That's correct. All right. And how much is the basis, the tax basis in the property? In other words, what'd she pay for it originally? She and her husband bought it back in the late 40s and uh, probably didn't pay more than five or 6000 for it. All right. So we'll assume almost the entire $150,000 is going to be capital gains. Right, yeah. All right. Well, let's take a look at this and see what we can do. Right. She can establish what's called a charitable trust. It's a double trust strategy that Linda and I have done for a number of clients in the last couple of years. Uh, and it works like this, Quint. She established, first of all, how is her health? Uh, very good. Well, that's another plus. Mm-hmm. Last question before I give you the answer is, what does she want ultimately after her death to happen to her estate? Uh, probably to uh, leave it for the use of her two sons. All right. Uh, just to leave a, an estate for them. Okay. Their care. Uh, both of them, uh, neither of them are wealthy. Uh, that's correct. They're not. Okay. All right. And her income, by the way, does she, can she, does she what is her income level right now? Uh it's not very high. She uh, she works part time as a licensed practical nurse, uh, two or three nights a week, and then uh, she has Social Security and uh, a little uh, income from. Uh, so really, the reason that she's selling this property is to get some income for herself. No, it's really to uh, to convert it to uh, uh, to uh, cash for investment or or for uh, to build an estate. 
Well, what I'm saying is if she, I think we're saying the same thing. If she sells it, she wants to get it converted so it's producing income. Well, yes. Uh-huh. Moving it from an illiquid, non-income producing right. asset to an income producing yeah, asset. Yeah, I guess that's, that's true, yes. All right. If she sets up a charitable trust and transfers the ownership of this property into the charitable trust and still retains herself as the trustee of this trust, then she as trustee sells the property mm-hmm. for the $150,000. She has She pays no capital gains tax whatsoever. The entire hundred and fifty thousand is available to her for her to invest. Mm-hmm. Now, the key to this thing is well, there are three keys. First of all, if she wants to make sure that the asset or the value of that asset, that hundred and fifty thousand, is going to go to her children after she dies, mm-hmm. then she has to set up a second trust or some sort of replacement strategy. Because in doing a charitable trust, she is agreeing after her death to give what's left of the asset to a charity, uh but to keep the income portion herself during her lifetime. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, if she goes ahead and actually lives uh, for 20 years, for example, then she would actually have, uh, you know, over a quarter of a million dollars of income coming out of this trust. But on the other hand... The principal, what's in the trust, will go to a charity after her death. Yeah, right. That's why Uncle Sam will let her go ahead and sell it and not pay taxes, Mm -hmm. even though the gift is going to be a deferred gift at some point in the future. Right. The way we solve that problem, and I have some clients who don't care about that. They're really looking just to increase their own income for their lifetime. They may not care. They may not have children and so on. Mm -hmm. They just want to increase their income. And they also want to go ahead and avoid capital gains taxes. Right. The second trust, however, is to put up an insurance trust, which we call a wealth replacement trust. Let's say $150,000 wealth replacement. We buy, a, we, we, we buy a $150,000 life insurance policy. We get the cheapest one we can. And that pays at her death to her children. Mm-hmm. So now during her lifetime, she's avoided all of the $53,000 of taxes on sale of the property. She gets 50% more income. And at her death, what's left in the charitable trust goes to the university or the Salvation Army or even a charitable foundation in her name. And then what's left over there in the insurance trust, that goes to her children. And of course, where does the premium come from to pay for the insurance? From part of the cash flow from the first trust. And the whole key is when you do one of these double trusts, she should always be the trustee. Never give up control. Right. Yeah. If you would like to go ahead and have her call my office, I will go ahead and schedule an appointment. Linda can schedule an appointment to get together with her and explore the uh, um, what she can do, because we have done a number of these. Uh Yeah. And that's the joy of 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 using the strategy is that because you've got this piece of property that's appreciated in value since she first, you know, bought it, Mm -hmm. that uh, you can have a tax problem down the road Mm -hmm. when, when things are final and it passes to the other party. Right. And uncle Sam will be right there with his hand out. Yeah. Yeah, But if you'll call the office, um, our number here in Raleigh is eight, seven, two, seven, thousand, eight, seven, two, seven, thousand. Okay. And uh, we'll be happy to do what we can to uh, help her and you, if we can. Okay. 
Well, look, uh, you've, you've uh, devoted a, uh, quite a response here, and I appreciate it. Thank you Okay, and thanks for Thank calling. Thank you, Quinn. Mm-hmm. You bet. Bye. Life insurance and retirement savings plans generally have two separate purposes. Retirement planning funds your life after work. Most life insurance policies fund your loved ones after you die. And there are two primary types of life insurance. One is term life insurance and the other is whole life insurance. Now, term life insurance provides coverage for a specific time period and has a specific premium that is based because or based on your age and health of you, the insured. Term life insurance is also called pure life insurance because its only purpose is to insure against your death. It generally does not accumulate additional value and it's not designed to financially protect. It's only designed to financially protect dependents in case you die. On the other hand, so-called whole or permanent life insurance, permanent payments uh, continue or it is fully funded, contains life insurance death benefit and separate components that build up cash value. In variable life insurance policies, the cash value is invested in sub-accounts that the policyholder is usually able to select. And in index life insurance policies, the cash value grows based on pre-established index. Yeah, this type of policy has the ability to withdraw or borrow against its cash value. Those distributions through borrowing, of course, though you're borrowing from yourself, you realize, so they're 100% tax-free, versus many other types of retirement funds where when you borrow, they're not tax-free. However, interest rates on these loans are very high. Sometimes they're around 7% to 8%, and if you fail to pay off the loans or the withdrawals, this lowers your death benefit. Life insurance salespeople, they like to portray variable policies as the Swiss Army knives of insurance products. Future income, projected growth, tax benefits, death benefits, a fund to cover long-term nursing care, an emergency cash fund, and more. But hey, (laughs) my advice is watch out. That's right. There are three main negatives to using life insurance as a retirement vehicle. Number one The first thing is the cost. You're paying for the underlying insurance, which you might not need down the road. Additionally, the fees can be three to four times higher than other savings options. Now, second, although the amount contributed for investing can vary, you must pay the premium until the policy is fully funded. Well, in in other types of retirement products, you can just stop contributing when you have had a bad year. Yet with this life insurance, you can't. Third, it probably will not make sense in your situation to fund the life insurance when you have not contributed to your 401k or your IRA. You will always be better off considering more traditional retirement savings options before venturing into other types. So I don't want to end the question by just saying nobody needs life insurance. Life insurance should be a consideration if you have dependents who rely on you financially. In the case of your untimely death, life insurance is going to ensure that your loved ones are provided for. Additionally, life insurance can cover any outstanding debts like a mortgage, as well as costs for your death and your funeral. It's important to note that life insurance should not 
be viewed as an investment. Underscore that life insurance should not be viewed as an investment. Its primary purpose is to insure against unexpected fatality and is therefore is legally a form of risk management. If you're looking to save for retirement or your child's future, there are much better options than life insurance. A financial advisor has a fiduciary responsibility, one that is being underscored with the implementation of the fiduciary rule, and that is to recommend retirement options that are in your best interest. If an advisor suggests contributing more to life insurance than funding other retirement options, it may behoove you to get a second opinion. You need to call us. The Lewises at Lewis Financial Management, 919-872-7000. As certified financial planners, we start with a holistic approach to your assets and future needs. The resulting financial plan will be a sound one based on your situation, not what may work for someone else. And I think that's the real key is that you need to know when someone is selling you a product for two or three different Solutions to be solved, it more than likely is not going to solve the first thing that you needed it to solve to begin with. Yeah. Like guaranteed income. (laughs) Well, uh, Doug and Deborah, I also wanted to say that, that insurance is one of the facets of comprehensive financial planning that we address in our office because some people want to know, am I adequately insured? Am I overly overinsured? Am I... Do I need more insurance? And that that is one of the aspects that we do cover in our practice. For a consultation with Doug or Deborah Lewis, call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. I remember there was a person who wrote in and said, my wife and I both work. We're trying to figure out when each of us will retire. What are the advantages and disadvantages of retiring together or at different times? How do you manage retirement when one spouse is still working? Well, of course, there's no single correct answer when it comes to timing retirement, but there are several points to consider. Retiring at the same time tends to work better, and most couples, by definition, navigate big changes in their lives together, relocating, sometimes starting a family, choosing and changing career paths, And retirement, of course, is a very big change. So if one spouse suddenly is staying home, it can throw a marriage out of whack and take something as simple as housework. When one spouse continues to work while the other retires, the working spouse may expect the latter to take on more responsibility for cleaning, running errands, and cooking. But the retired spouse may balk at suddenly becoming a full-time homemaker. So retiring together can help minimize such complications. Yes. Some spouses who retire at the same time struggle with new routines and new boundaries, but that's usually because they fail to take time before retiring to address several fundamental questions like, what's our vision of later life? How do we plan to fill our days? What activities and interests will we pursue as a couple and individually? There's also one specific instance in which retiring at the same time can cause problems. Men and women often view decisions about retirement through different lenses. To be specific, when a husband retires, it is frequently an individual decision. His career has run its course 
or he's reached a particular age or goal. You know, some uh, recently some of our clients have worked for the same company for 25 years, 30 years, 30, even 39 years. And yes, he might discuss the decision with his wife, but such chats are more likely to occur after he's already made up his mind or all but made up his mind, right? Yeah, and then when a woman retires, by contrast, it's more likely to be a family decision. A husband expects the wife to leave work because he's doing so, or a family member like an aging parent requires care. In short, if a wife is pulled from a job or career before she might be ready, strains on the marriage are all but inevitable. Of course, many spouses can't or don't want to retire at the same time. Layoffs, health problems, working longer to qualify for a full pension or to beef up their nest egg, a spouse who simply loves his job or her job, any number of issues can translate into differing retirement dates. So if that's the case, the best way to manage retirement when one spouse is still working is to talk about the transition. And I would tell you that so many times through the years, I have been in the middle of that discussion. They come into our office together and they just, they need to be able to talk it through, not only financially, which of course is the first part, are we able to do it? But then there's the emotional side. There's all the other parts, what it might look like, how it might work beforehand. What does each spouse expect from the new arrangement? How will roles and responsibilities shift? How will spending patterns in the household budget change? Or maybe does the retired spouse want to travel alone? All those are part of comprehensive financial planning. It's what we do day after day, year after year. Isn't it true that, you know, and oftentimes when folks come in to meet with us, they just are so happy to have a third party. Absolutely. <laughs> That's right. Someone to listen with professional ears. You know, you're talking about a big life decision and weighing the pros and cons and the timing and everything. Well, someone can listen with their heart and their head. And if that person is a certified financial planner, they generally are looking um, at what has what will always be in your best interest to accomplish whatever it is that you see your retirement years looking like. That's right. You know, I don't think we've mentioned tonight on the air so far that for those clients that come in for their first meeting this next week, we will be giving away one of three free books, either The Wealthy Barber or Middle Class Millionaire or Simple Wealth, Inevitable Wealth. That's always our joy to give you something free when you come to visit us. Also, you can go to our website, DougAndLinda.com. That's DougAndLinda.com. George, this is Doug Lewis with Money Matters. How can I help you this evening? I've always heard three to six month emergency fund. Uh, I was wondering if it was appropriate to consider one's IRA or, or retirement account as that. I realize that they're steep penalties, but in the case of an emergency, it is something I could get my hands on. No, George, that's a real no-no. Uh-huh. When you're, when you're doing financial planning, there are certain basic rules that we establish. And first of all, we look at the relationship between qualified portfolios and non-qualified portfolios. Mm -hmm. How old are you, George? I'm 28. 28 years old. Mm -hmm. What that means is that your personal portfolio is money that is not under any tax shelter limitations right. or restrictions. 
This portfolio would be your mutual funds, your limited partnerships, anything that's your personal investment. Mm -hmm. Your qualified portfolio is your portfolio that qualifies for a tax shelter like IRAs and pensions and profit sharings. But the the key, the the little uh, hook there, the barb is that the IRS says you can't really touch it in your case for about, you know, 35 years or 32 years and so on. Well, in that case, we look at these two portfolios separately. Once we see what your ratio is, then we start building the two of them simultaneously. But before we do any of that, we still have to prepare for the day you're going to get fired, mm-hmm. for the day there's going to be a tragedy that you have not planned for whatsoever. Right. And that's the emergency fund. Okay. And that money basically should be, are you married or single? I'm married. You're married. Children? One. How, uh, is your wife working? Uh, not really. Single family. Mm-hmm. I mean, single income. Wife not working. What's your income range? About 60K. You're making $60,000. Is right. your job stable? I would say so. All right. And you've got one income, one child, 28 years old. What are your living expenses running? Probably around 2000 a month. 2000 a month. Have you factored in all of your expenses now? Yeah. Because, uh, you know, the, the biggest part of that is obviously the mortgage and utilities and things like that. But uh, Have you factored in your, your vacations? No, I, we never take vacations. Have you factored in clothing? <laughs> yeah. Or have you factored in gifts and birthdays and Christmas presents? No. Nah. Factor all of those in. Don't it, play games cheating yourself. But in an emergency, I'm not going to be buying any, any Christmas presents. George, I'm telling you what to do, uh-huh. okay? I'm telling you what to do to protect yourself, okay? okay? Don't play games with yourself. I'm telling you the proper way to protect yourself, okay? Mm-hmm. When you factor in your living expenses, add up all of your expenses at your present lifestyle. Mm-hmm. At your present lifestyle, okay? Right. Factor in all of the things that are annual expenses as well as your uh, monthly expenses. What you don't factor in is your one-timers, the things this past year that you did one time that won't happen again, like buying $10,000 of furniture for your house. Mm-hmm. But you do factor in vacations and gifts and charitable contributions and all of these things. Add them up for the year, and it's probably going to be more than 24000 because that means you're, accum- you're saving an enormous amount of money on a 60000 income. So you're probably doing more than 24000 a year, right? Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, What's your investment portfolio look like right now? Uh, it's not counting the, the tax-sheltered thing, I would say, between fifteen and 20000 Okay, so you see somewhere there's a big gap in your income uh-huh. and what you've accumulated. Yeah. And that means you're spending it. So you want to find, you want to put down on paper what you're spending it on. Don't think in terms of, well, is this emergency spending or not? Mm-hmm. Get your lifestyle on paper. Okay. Once you've got your lifestyle on paper, divide it by 12. And at your income and your age, multiply that times three. That's fine. Mm-hmm. So let's say that you're spending all at, a, at the rate of maybe 48000 a year or maybe 40000 a year. All right. Then you go ahead and you take your 40000 you divide it by uh, 12, divide it by 12, and multiply it times three, and $10,000 is fine for you to be kept in a money market fund. Okay, is that the, the normal amount of risk? Uh, that, a, that was my next question. Should it be in an insured bank account, a money market fund, which is not insured, or perhaps a bond fund, a short-term bond fund? No, your bond funds are going to be part of your investment portfolio. Okay. 
See, that's why I'm saying this emergency fund is not, you don't even consider it earning interest or not earning interest. Yes, it's only going to make 2.5%. Yes, it's Stinko. That's got nothing to do with its function. I'd be happy if you kept it in, your, in, in, in a piggy bank at home. Okay. The other part of your question about the safety of it, I wouldn't worry about uh, whether you're in a money market fund or a bank account at ten thousand dollars. If okay. we were talking about one hundred and fifty thousand, it'd be different. But we wouldn't be talking about a money market fund at one hundred and fifty. Right. See what I'm saying? Okay. So do keep it in a money market fund. Uh, I like the money market funds better for a number of reasons, but it doesn't matter to me. But use that principle, and you'll be safe. And then build the two portfolios: your personal and your qualified, simultaneously, trying to keep them in an equal ratio. You see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, yeah. I see exactly what you're saying. Well, let me ask you one more quick question. I am currently saving, started saving for college. My daughter's less than a year old. Uh-huh. Um, is that best to be kept in her name or my name as a trustee or just in my name? That's an excellent question, George. Used to be when we were doing financial planning for folks and we were talking about college education funding, we would always recommend put money in an UGMA account, UGMA's Uniform Gift to Minors account. Mm-hmm. Because of a number of reasons, the most primary of which, of course, was the tax deduction or the tax savings that were involved. Now, however, the cost of college is so enormous. With a one-year-old talking about trying to fund college 16 years from now, I would probably end up probably pretty close to a million dollars if I run my numbers. Mm -hmm. With those kinds of numbers in front of us, to... Put this money in an irrevocable gifted account to a child, which is what a uniform gift to minors account is, is too much of a temptation because just consider what you would have been like if you had found out that you had eight hundred or $900,000 that was your money and your parents couldn't do a thing about it. And there you were at 18 years old saying, I've got it. Suppose you decided you were going to head to Europe and sit at the base of a mountain cross-legged and uh, discover the inner workings of your mind and give it all to your favorite guru. Or maybe it's to buy that favorite Maserati and tour Europe. Mm -hmm. All the wild, crazy, cuckoo things that kids could think of doing today with an enormous amount of money in front of them take away the incentive of the tax uh, savings. And so what we've recommended for clients is do set up, do compute exactly what you will need to be setting up monthly to pay for that future college. That's crucial. Mm-hmm. Do set that in, sep- in, in separate accounts, but keep them in your name. Okay. And that way, if indeed the child turns to be not all that you expected, then that's your retirement money for you and your wife and let the child go to the mountain you know, with his own money. Mm-hmm. And that, that has worked out much better than letting the tax tail wag the dog. Okay. Very good. Does that help you, George? That helps a lot. Thank you for calling. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. And by the way, George, if you'd like some information or some worksheets to help you um, write out all those ex- living expenses, you can call me at the office at 872-7000. Bye-bye now. Roger, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you this evening? Hey, uh, Doug, thanks for being there, and thanks for being willing to uh, answer questions. I have what is should be maybe kind of an easy question for you. You can help me think about something on uh, home purchase. All right. And that I think that a 15-year mortgage has uh, much more advantages than a 30-year mortgage. But I was thinking, and I would like to get your views on whether it makes any sense at all to consider a uh, cash purchase as opposed to a mortgage. 
All right. Well, number one, I don't have any particular views on a cash purchase versus a 15 year versus a 30 year. But I do have particular views about a person's situation specifically. So if you tell me a little bit about Roger, I can tell you what my views are about Roger. How old are you? 48. 48 years old. Married or single? Uh, Single. Single. Income? Oh, approximately with everything, uh, nearly 60. 60. When you say with everything, is that salary plus bonuses, that sort of thing? Well, that's that's salary plus a a second uh, part-time thing and plus... uh, uh, interest income and any dividend income. Uh, what's the income without the dividend and interest? No. Let's schedule B income, and I don't want to leave that one. I want to leave that one out of the picture for the moment. Without dividend and interest and all this, it's probably, let's say, um, about 48. All right. So we got about $48,000 of income, earned income, and now let's take a look at your assets. What do you have in the way of investment assets, Roger? I have some stocks, some bonds, but... uh, How much in stocks? Gosh, I don't know. Let me see. I don't know. Not very much, but maybe uh, less than 10,000. All right. And bonds? And bonds, uh, about 35. All right. Cash and money market and CD accounts. Well, over over uh, one sixty. One hundred sixty thousand. That's producing all that interest that uh, Schedule B income you were talking about. Right. All right. So we've got your live. Uh, now, what about your living expenses? Um. Well, they're not they're not too great. I'm in pretty good shape as far as uh, as debt. I have you know basically no debt. Via all right. Stuff like that paid for. All right. So. Your expenses are just your normal living expenses, automobile, uh, food and groceries, eating out, vacations, and so forth. Exactly. All right. What are you spending on a yearly basis? Do you have any idea? No, I don't. You're living off your 48000 Yes. All right. So you're spending less than 48000 So you're able to accumulate. Right. That, all right. That means you've got a tax problem also. If you've got a $48,000 income and you're single, you're not paying alimony, are you? No. Okay. Uh, so you've probably got a tax situation to deal with. Yes. Okay, number one, don't buy a house for all cash. Okay. What you are doing buying for all cash for you is you are making an investment. Now, I want you to think for a second that you're not going to live in this house for the rest of your life. You agree? Uh, yes. Past experience and statistics, I think, would probably bear that out. Right. And my experience with senior citizens is they'll reach a point, even if you do happen to live in that house 30 years, that you'll say, I want to leave, right. whether it to be to go into a retirement community or nursing home, whatever. All right. The thing that's in that house, other than the shelter, is something called equity. That's how much it's working for you. Okay? Right. And you will only know what that equity is the day you sell the house, and that's what comes out of it. So in addition to using that house as a shelter, you are also using it as an investment. And you can invest much better than the equity in that house. If you go ahead and leverage that house, and I would not say this to everybody, but for a single individual who is, has no one to support other than himself, who is, who has an excess income over expense and has a tax problem, then you can afford to leverage. 
Leverage means borrow, of course, right. and, and take a mortgage. Now the question comes, well, if I do that, what kind of mortgage? 15-year or 30-year mortgage? You do not want a 15-year mortgage. Oh, my goodness. The purpose of the 15-year mortgage is to get it paid off fast, but, you're too, but we already know you can get yours paid off with a lump sum. So if a lump sum is a dumb move, a 15-year mortgage is just as dumb. Here's, huh. here's why. So go along with minimum down. You want a minimum down payment for you. You want a 30-year mortgage, and your payments will give you a bigger hunk of tax reduction than you would get Otherwise, with the 15-year mortgage, assuming it was the same $1,000 payment, for example, which it wouldn't be in a 15-year versus a 30, but it would be bigger in the 15. But assuming it was the same, Uncle Sam would be paying a third of the 30 for you and only about a little more than half of the 15-year for you, which means that your tax reduction is much stronger for the 30-year. Now, going back to the equity, when you sell your house, you will be making more coming out because the money that you didn't put into the house, which is invested. Now, if you keep leaving it in bonds, I mean, if you leave it in, in money market and yeah, CDs, that's a dumb move and that won't work. Right. Then, then if you factor, one or two. that's right. Then if you factor in that Uncle Sam is going to go ahead and pay you one third of the dollars that you pay to keep that thing leveraged, you get much more bang for your buck in your personal situation. So that's my advice for you. Don't and buy. You know, and you don't worry about that uh, that lifetime huge chunk of difference that you pay out in interest over the 30 years versus the 15. I love it. I love it. You're going to pay that huge lifetime of interest, and Uncle Sam's going to turn around and give you back a third of it. Not only that. Yeah, but I got to pay 70% of it. Yeah, but no, you're not. You're growing that other, You're growing the equity out there in the stock market much faster. If you, if you work with a certified financial planner, develop your investment portfolio properly. Thanks for calling, Roger. Okay, thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And if you want some more information, Roger, just call the office at 872-7000. Lynn, you think I would have given that same advice if he was 65 years old, if his income was just what his expenses are, and if he was supporting a mentally retarded child, 28 at home? I doubt it. Everybody's situation is different. Well, Doug, Linda, there are some money mistakes that people can avoid. And uh, a lot of avoiding these mistakes is because mis these mi mistakes that we make cause us so much stress. So if we, could, we knew what some of them were, we could avoid them and have a lot less stress in our lives. There are a lot of what I would call simple, stupid mistakes to avoid. An interesting article, isn't it? <laughs> well, Doug, one of those mistakes is spending more than you earn. You know... Let's start with that stupidest mistake of all, Linda, not doing the math correctly. If you spend more than you earn, it's always going to catch up with you. That's not to say that you have to pay for everything with cash. A lot of people, of course, have to have mortgages in their home and maybe student loans. Uh, but still, it's crucial to make a realistic budget and stick to it so you live within your means. And another mistake that a lot of folks make is not saving anything. You know, Linda, intelligent people can disagree over precisely how much you need to save for a rainy day fund or to provide for comfortable retirement, but not saving anything and living paycheck to paycheck, that is just irresponsible. Not only does it provide no opportunity for things such as buying a house, it naively assumes that you won't ever need the money for a rainy day. I would say that's definitely stupid mistake number two to avoid. Don't do it. <laughs> And there's another mistake that a lot of folks What's that? do. 
What's especially that? at this day and time. What's that? Living in a place you can't afford. Oh, very this good. This is a no-no. Yeah, I read recently about Warren Buffett's home. And uh, it's the same house that he's lived in for how many years? I want to say like 30 or 50 years, and he bought it for either 30 or $50,000. Right. It's, no it's no castle. Yeah. It's just the house. <laughs> yeah, living in a place you can't afford is a really, it, it's a foolish thing to do. No, Most no. financial experts say that you shouldn't spend more than a third of your take-home pay on housing and related expenses for housing. And that's especially true for those who don't make much money because the bills are going to quickly gobble up the rest of your budget. Think of it this way. If you take home 2000 a month, but spend half of that on housing, then you've only got 1000 a month left to survive on. That works out to $33 a day for your food, your gas, and everything in between. So definitely big mistake living in a place that you can't afford. And another mistake that some folks uh, do is that they miss out on their 401k match. You know, so your Linda, employer provides yeah, that. Yeah, and I see that with young perk. people. Young people mm-hmm. so often. The older ones I know, they over-contribute. But the young ones that I see, they, they don't even realize that their boss is trying to give them free money. Every American should be saving for retirement in some way. But if your employer offers a 401k matching I mean, that's a that's a failure to save and an even bigger mistake because that's free money as a reward for something you should be doing anyway, which is saving. So here, so you should be saving and your boss is giving you free money to save and you're saying, I don't want it. So take advantage of it. If you've got a 401k, make sure you talk to the folks in your human resources and or your retirement benefits uh, division and make sure that you're getting that match. You're taking that free money and investing it wisely. Another mistake that some folks uh, fall into is failing to invest their savings. Yeah, you can put it aside, but not invest it. And that's another mistake. Even if you are saving, then the hill that you need to climb to provide for those quote, quote, golden years is daunting. Experts recommend that you need eight to 10 times your salary when you finally reach retirement. That means if you make 60,000 a year, you're going to need 600000 a year. Or put another way, if you're 35 years old, you have to save 20000 each year for the next 30 years if you're planning on retiring at age 65. So you have to know how to invest the money you save, not just save it and put it under the mattress. I remember there was many years ago there was somebody that had $85,000 under their mattress. Do you remember that? I do. It was a caller who <laughs> called us on the air. <laughs> I remember you asked I her. Think it was yeah, she asked you, Linda. She said, uh, what should she do? And you said, well, uh, how much do you have? And she said, 80000 or 85000 You said, well, where is it? And she said, under my mattress. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> and the biggest reason re- why you really need to be able to do more than just save is because if you were to invest that savings, that 60000 at a modest 5% rate of return, all you'd need to save is about 8500 or 14% of your salary to create that same $600,000 nest egg in 30 years. So it just makes sense. It certainly does make sense. And the another pro- mistake uh, or problem that some folks have is that they invest with greed or desperation. Yeah, there are always going to be risks with any investments. That's just the definition of investing. It's almost universally true that higher rates of return only come with higher risk. 
But keeping greed in check is crucial. So is planning properly to prevent falling way behind. If you build up a good emergency fund, if you start planning for retirement early, you don't have to take big risks out of desperation or greed. Just do it in a planning way. Do it properly, do it consistently, and use time. Let time be the advantage. Because like you said, Debs, over a 10, 20, or 30-year period, you will accumulate. And there's no emotion in money, right? No. That's right. If you Numbers do it this don't way. lie. Yeah. When you <laughs> stick to a plan, it works. Now, we talked about earlier that the uh, another big mistake, so we probably don't need to spend a lot of time on it. But another big mistake, don't tap your retirement funds early. Yeah. If you can avoid it, don't go into it. Let it stay there and do its job. And How about it, waiting too long for life insurance? That's right. That's a problem that a lot of people don't realize. Life insurance companies are not charities. They set their premiums based on the risk of payouts. And it's only natural that an older American has to pay a higher premium for life insurance than a younger one. So why wait? You meet with your financial planner like us. We help you decide what is the proper amount of insurance, if any, and get it while it's the cheapest. And another mistake that some folks make is they fail to make a will. They forget about it or they just don't do it for decades. That's right, Linda. It's the same problem as with life insurance. A good will is a crucial part for providing for your family should tragedy strike. In most cases, a visit with a qualified, certified financial planner like us, a couple of hours is going to ensure that your family stays in control of any assets, avoids any harsh estate taxes. And so uh, estate planning is just part of what needs to be done. And to not do it, is a big mistake. And you know, we hear a lot that a lot of people uh, will will say in our office that they didn't do it or haven't made the appointment with the estate planning attorney because they just felt overwhelmed. So one of the questions that you should be writing down tonight about your own situation when you call us at 919-872-7000 is in regard to estate planning. What you would want to happen and what you would want to talk with about Uh, in regard to your own estate planning with a certified financial planner. These are all the things that we can help you do. And one of them is being prepared to meet with an estate planning attorney so that you can have the proper documents created. And there are no dumb questions. You know, I, I, over the, over these past, well, decades now, but you know, for the folks that have come in, sometimes it's very daunting when you go in because nobody likes to talk about death. And that's what, I mean, it's emotional if you're going to talk about losing your loved one. Um, But um, it's something that that has to be done at some point. And it's better if you work with your advisor and let them help you, like in our firm, where we can assist you with the design of your estate plan. And then we get a competent estate planning attorney that can drop the documents based on all the facts. Now, Doug, there is one last mistake here that some folks have, and that's following a cookie-cutter approach. There's not a one-size-fits-all for everyone, is there? Not any uh, that I've ever seen. (laughs) That's Uh, right. There really isn't. And in the same way we all um, have different styles in most every other area of our life, the biggest thing that we should realize is that we all have different money styles. I have seen clients with 
$20 million estates who want their children to get nothing. And I have seen clients with $150,000 estates who are very determined to leave a proper estate for their children. There is no cookie cutter approach, Linda, Deborah, not at all. You know why? Your money matters because your financial future is at stake. been listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug, Linda, or Deborah in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's 919-872-7000. Or go to DougAndLinda.com. 